The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. You know, as, as we were singing these songs and, and then hearing that psalm, I was just struck this morning with the fact that we can cry out to the Lord like David did, where are you? And yet he knows God's right there. We can sing psalm songs like, abide with me. And yet we know that he will. And it's just the beauty that we have as believers that even in those moments of weakness and even, in, even when we can't feel God or believe that he's there, we can know that he is there and we can know that he is good. So I've been encouraged um, this morning already. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for that encouragement that as believers, we can cry out to you, that we can be weak and frail and in our moments of distress, go, Lord, where are you? Lord, have you forgotten us? Lord, do you see the pain and the struggle and the, and, and the, the anxiety that we're going through? And, and yet, in the same breath, with the same intensity, with the same trustworthiness, we can say that you're there. You have not taken your eyes off of us. That you have not lost control. That you have not forgotten about us. That you abide with us. And that for us, that's a, that's a passive thing that we do. You're, you're always there, and yet we just get to sit in your presence and sit in your glory and sit in your love as your children, knowing that as your children who have been redeemed from this, from this body of death, who've been redeemed from our sin, who have been redeemed from this dark world, that we get to rest in the hope that one day there's coming a moment when all the pain and the tears are gone when the difficulties of this world will be no more and that we can bask in your glory forever and, and experience in, in every way possible your glory. Lord, I pray this morning as we get to look at your word, as you do every week, that we would just rest in the truth, knowing that while we are sinners, you are a gracious God and have mercifully sent your son to save us. Just be with us now. In your son's name, amen. Well, you can turn to the book of John. We are heading back into our series this morning, our study of making our way through the gospel of John. It's been uh, three, four months since we were last in this book. Uh, it was, it had a lot of fun having the few short sermon series that were between the last time we were in the gospel of John and today. I look forward to some coming series that, that we're already working on. One's coming in the middle of November and the other is coming in January. So we're going to be in the gospel of John for a while and then we'll do the exact same thing that we, we once did and jump off and look at something else. But I'm excited to be back in the gospel. Of John. Now, it's been a long time since we've been here, again, three, four months, and maybe a year like me where I was studying for the sermon, I had to go, what did I say before? What was actually said? Where are we? What have we covered? So what I want to do this morning is have uh, some review time. I, I am, we're going to share some, um, I'm not necessarily going to share some new information. We're, we're going to pick that up next week, but I just want to get all of us back on the same track and kind of understanding what's going on with this gospel so that when we pick it up, we can uh, know where we're going. And the reason that we're going to take this moment to just stop and review is because in the Gospel of John, as I said in the very last sermon that I had on this, we are uh, heading into a very unique portion in this book. 
Up to this time, John has had the shotgun approach of going from event to event to event. And um, we're heading into this section, chapters 7 through 10, where it's all one event. It all is taking place during the same time period, during the Feast of Booths. And it's all an eight-day period of time. So in one sense, John like puts on the brakes, brings us to this feast and says, I need you to understand what's happening in these eight days. Now, it's been about six months, if you look at the, uh, the um, kind of the chronological view of this, the, the timeline view of this, it's been about six months since the feeding of the 5,000. And so, John is not kind of sharing his gospel in kind of event by event standpoint. We have those, uh, we have kind of that layout of the gospel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Rather, John has been very explicit from the very beginning. I'm writing this gospel to you so that you can know one thing. And the one thing that I want you to know is that Jesus us is the Christ, he's your Messiah, and that you need to know him. So everything that he's doing in this gospel is crafting this argument, crafting Jesus's life and ministry for us so that he can prove to us that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. So we then get to ask the question, heading into this section, 7 to 10, why did John find it so important that he stopped, and instead of having the shotgun approach, kind of quick event approach that we've had uh, up to this point, why did he stop and give us four chapters specifically on the Feast of Booths? Now, what is the Feast of Booths? Because John 7 through 10 all takes place at the Feast of Booths. Well, the Feast of Booths for Israel was the most well-attended feast. This was the time when Jerusalem would be the fullest. The most people journeyed to Jerusalem to go to this feast. And this feast was celebrating something very specific and something that was uh, very well-known to the Israelites. It was even well-known, I think, to us because it's something that we've looked at before our study in John. That is, it looked at what happened with Israel through the wilderness wanderings. You see, the Feast of Booths celebrated God's gracious provision for Israel in the wilderness and the completion of the year's harvest. One of the reasons it was the most well-attended feast was because this is the first time when these people could finally leave their homes. This was an uh, a agrarian culture, which means they lived off the land, so they had to follow the harvest season. So you had to be at home when you needed to plant your, your harvest. You needed to be at home in order to tend to your harvest. You definitely needed to be at home when it was harvest time. It was all hands on deck. You, you cannot take PTO during the harvest time. Well, the Feast of Booths is celebrating the harvest is over. So this is like the first vacation. You're finally released to go see your friends and also celebrate the harvest that you've had and and so people gather together to celebrate God's gracious provision both for the wilderness wanderings and for that harvest. And they celebrated this picture of Israel in the wilderness through two very specific things. There was two ceremonies that took place. Ceremonies that would bring their mind back to what Israel did in the wilderness. The first one was a celebration of a ceremonial water drawing. And it, this was to commemorate the provision of water in the wilderness. There was multiple times in the wilderness when Israel would run out of water and they would ask the question, how are we going to live? We're going to die. We can't make this. And then what did God do? God told Moses, strike a rock, speak to a rock. I'm going to give you a rock or throw a, a, a stick and, or throw a log in water and it's going to go from bitter water to clean water. So there are these times when, when Israel was brought to this point of we can't, we no longer can live because we cannot find water and then... 
God gives them water. So there's this ceremonial water drawing in these pots to demonstrate God provided us water when we needed it. Then there's also this lamp lighting ritual. There would be these four giant cauldrons surrounding the temple. And I'm talking giant cauldrons like, I think they were 20 feet wide. They would put wood in there, they would put fuel in there, and then they would light them on fire. And what the lamp lighting um, was pointing to was God's gracious guidance through the wilderness wanderings. Because consider how God guided his people for 40 years and 40, 40 years. I was going to say 40 days and 40 nights. That's no, 40 years. <laughs> through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Now, it blows my mind. I can't even imagine what this is like. But they physically saw a pillar of cloud and physically saw a pillar of fire over the tabernacle and they had one job. Even if you were um, directionally dysfunctioned, even if you couldn't follow a GPS to save your life, you could do this. It's stay close to the cloud. That's where you're going to go. So they would light these bowls on fire, these basins on fire. They would have these giant cauldrons up in flames to, to signify and to remember God's guidance through the wilderness. And so every year, the Israelites would gather together and they would remember God's gracious guidance through the wilderness. Now why on earth did John, of all of the feasts that he could have gone to, I mean we've already been to, to some feasts, we've, are, we've already been to, to the Passover feast, we've already seen Jesus cleanse the temple, Jesus has been in and out of Jerusalem so many times. Why, of all of the feasts, did John say this these are the stories that you need to know. Let me hit the brakes and let me tell you what happened in this eight-day period. Here's what I want to do. I want to rehash what we looked at the very last time we were in the Gospel of John all the way three, four months ago. I think it was four months ago. By looking at the first 15 verses because it sets up the scene for us. And then I have a different question that, that's going to uh, carry us on for the rest of the morning. I'm going to read it. This is the first 14 verses of John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go up to Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judah, and your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed him. The very first thing we see in this, in this episode is Jesus essentially being criticized by the people closest to him. It's very clear his brothers gave him a vote of no confidence. I mean, this is almost said in these mocking terms. His brothers who are watching this ministry unfold and all of a sudden, you know, for them, one day it's like, yeah, Jesus is my older brother too. You're the Messiah, you're the Lamb of God. Wow, that's a bold statement. They don't even believe that he's this. But he goes, hey, well, there's this feast over here in Jerusalem. And if you want to make a splash, if you want to get your name out there, clearly you're, you're trying to build your following over here. You should go up to the Feast of Booths and make a statement there. Well, it was all just a, out of a mocking. It's like, if you think you're big stuff, you should go over there. But it's very clear that Jesus' brothers don't even believe him. In one sense, this is the essence of the debate that's happening throughout the feast. We're constantly going to have these arguments where the Pharisees are going to say one thing. The crowd is going to say one thing. They're both going to be questioning Jesus. And Jesus is going to be proving to them, no, I am the Lamb of God. 
No, I am worth following. No, I am the Savior who will take away your sins. But even here, the people closest to Jesus who knew him the most, if there was one person who could say, he's different than any other person I've I've interacted with, it would be his brothers, would it not? We see at the very beginning of this, this lack of confidence in Jesus. Look how he continues. Jesus said to them, No, my time has not yet come. I'm not going to go up to the feast. Your time is already here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. If his brother's vote of no confidence was shocking, Jesus' reply was shocking. And imagine if Jesus is like, no, I can't go up there because, well, they hate me, but they don't hate you. Whether his brothers understood it or not, what he was saying is, listen, we are not the same. We are not playing on the same team. We're not going for the same group. You can go up there because it's safe. Why? Because those are your people. I can't go up there because those are not my people. To use other language, essentially what Jesus is is saying, if you look all the way back to like John 1 where we started, where it had had this prologue to the entire gospel and it said light came into the world, but the darkness hated the light and tried to snuff it out. What Jesus is saying here is, brothers, you're in darkness. You are a part of the darkness. Your friends are in darkness. You live in that camp. I don't live in that camp. It's not my time yet to go up there. So you go up there, feel free. Those are your people. But those aren't my people. So I'm not going up there yet. So the second thing we see is that the world can't hate you because you're in darkness. You see, as the focus is narrowed in the gospel, because the gospel writer John is bringing us to a very specific point. He wrote this entire gospel down for one simple reason. He wants us to get done reading this book and for us to stand back and go, Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. If I want to be at peace with God, I am going to go have peace through Jesus. That is exactly why he wrote this down and he is crafting everything in the spirit, obviously. He's crafting everything so that we can, we can know that. And so as he is narrowing it down, he's also intensifying his description of the world. He's intensifying the, which team are you on? Which side do you play for? Who are you actually rooting for here? Are you a son of darkness or are you a son of light? We saw the third one as this whole scene is set up. We saw that Jesus actually does go up there. Verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? See, just like his brothers, all of the other Jews thought if there was one time and place for Jesus to finally solidify his ministry and put a stamp on it and make a name for himself and promote himself, if he was going to be, if he's on the campaign trail, he's got to be at this feast. They're going, where is he? And there was muttering about them among the people. While some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, 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 no. He's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. What we'll see and what will carry us through this whole section 7 to 10 
is it's undeniable that Jesus is the talk of the town. He didn't take a public stage. He didn't come up and stand on the stage and go, let me give you my seven points for why I'm actually the person you need to be leading. Let me take a public um, uh, stance against the Pharisees or against Rome. But he's definitely the talk of the town. Everyone knows who this guy is now. I mean, imagine if you're coming to the feast. Again, it's when everyone, it's, it's the most well-attended feast of the year. Imagine that you haven't, you've heard rumors of Jesus. You've heard rumors of the miracles. You've heard of these things. And you finally can leave your town and leave your farm. And you can go to Jerusalem and you're thinking, I just want to get an autograph. I just want to see a miracle. I just want to experience him personally. And then you're like, but where is he? Why isn't he up here? I want to see him. That sets the overall kind of scene of what's happening in Jerusalem at the time. But before we go any further, I want to have a separate conversation about this scene so that we can better set the tone. You see, there's been a question that I've been pondering over the last four months. And full disclosure, the last time I preached it, I didn't have an answer to this question. I had the question, but I didn't have an answer to this question. And it's kind of taken me all summer long mulling this whole thing over my head of like, and the, and the question has been, it's what I've been referencing, why did John stop the gospel and write so much about these eight days? What is it about this scene, the feast of the, of the booths, that is so important that of all of the other things that Jesus did in ministry, he gives us these stories. I mean, consider, Jesus has three and a half years of detail. There's three and a half years of ministry. We don't even know all the stories that happened in that, in that three and a half years. We know some that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about. And we know the, some that John talked about. Some of them they all four talk about. Some of them just the three talk about. Some of them just the one talk about. But we don't have his full ministry life for, for the first three and a half years. We don't have that because it's impossible for us to consider that the only thing he did in three and a half years are the stories that we have here. So at bare minimum, each and every gospel episode is what that writer said, this is what you must know. If I'm going to tell you anything about Jesus, this is what you have to have. But why is it that these eight days were so important that they stuck out in John's mind and said, this is what you have to know? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the answer to my question. I'm going to give you the answer that I have to my question. And then over the next couple of months, as we look at this, I pray that you will begin to see how that answer fits into everything. So instead of me kind of having the overview, I'm just going to jump right to the answer. So you might go, prove that. Well, keep coming, because that's the next three months as we're looking at the Feast of Booths through John 7 through 10. Here's the answer. Here's why the Feast of Booths is so important. Here's why John stopped his journeying through the through Jesus' ministry and said, okay, I got to give you th this story in a nutshell. Jesus, during the Feast of Booths, is defining the kingdom of God. The other way to say that is Jesus, during the Feast of Booths, is declaring the kingdom of God. And in one of the ways that he's declaring it, he's declaring it against another kingdom. Now, you might ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? And to that question, there have been hundreds of books, thousands of pages written on it. 
And I, I could have a whole sermon series that would last probably five years looking at all of the details around the kingdom of God. But to state it in its simplest of terms, the kingdom of God is the place where God rules and reigns. Just think of this for a moment. If the fall never happened, and I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? You would say, the world. Because before the fall, the world was the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is before the fall, God ruled and reigned on this earth. That's how this earth was created to be set up. God created man and woman. God created all of his dominion. And God was clearly the authority and the ruler in this. So people obeyed God as king, as the ruler. That was the kingdom of God. Then something happened. I don't have to take long to explain to you what happened because you live in that every day. But essentially what happened is another kingdom was proposed. And the other kingdom that was proposed was not a kingdom of God, but a kingdom of man. Because essentially what happened at the fall was that the devil, the serpent, came to Eve and said, You don't have to follow God as king. You don't have to follow his rules. You don't have to obey him. You can obey and follow somebody else. You can obey and follow yourself. You can think for yourself. You can do what you think is best. You can become wise in your own eyes and do what you think is best. And so Eve went, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let me take this fruit. And immediately, there was a second kingdom born. Now, it was a lesser kingdom. Definitely it was not the um, complete kingdom because God is the ultimate sovereign ruler of this world. So we have to ask the question at the, very, at the very beginning, God, why did you even allow a second kingdom, a foreign kingdom, to exist within your proper kingdom? Because clearly you are the sovereign ruler of the world and you could have immediately squashed that kingdom instantaneously. You could have not allowed the serpent to be there in the first place. Why did you allow this, the, even the idea that there could be another ruler on this earth? Well, mankind's been trying to answer that question since the beginning too. But the reality is, it did happen. There was another option given. There was another kingdom built. So now, we have this place where it's okay. It's not just God's kingdom, but there's also this second kingdom. You see, in order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a ruler. And the way that you describe and the way that you identify which kingdom you're a part of is by obeying that ruler. So let's compare the two kingdoms that I just set up. God's kingdom is there from the beginning. And man's kingdom. What were the rules of God's kingdom? It's very simple. Obey God. Follow his law. Follow his rules. Glorify him. I mean, this was as simple as what it was in the garden before the fall. Adam, you can have dominion over this earth. You can do whatever you want, but obey me. That was the rules of that kingdom. God was the the ruler of that kingdom. He was in charge of that kingdom. Adam was in that kingdom. He was following God's kingdom because he was obeying the law. In the same way, what are the rules of man's kingdom? Let's not obey God's law. It's obey self. It's do whatever feels right to you. It's do what's right in your own eyes. It's you make the rules. You set the direction. 
I know right now you could be going, Ryan, where are you going with this? And maybe even this could be a prove it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I promise you this will come back around to John 7. I know it seems like we're on an odd rabbit trail. But it's a good one. Ephesians 2. The whole book of Ephesians is a, is a declaration of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and how uh, Christ comes in and saves a people to himself and then as a people, how we then live in light of the gospel. And Ephesians 1 starts with the gospel being declared really from the throne room of heaven. It's, it's, as, it's as if Paul is writing this from the perspective of the angels in heaven looking at the, the, the magnitude and the beauty of the gospel. And then he very quickly jumps down to the lens of humanity through our eyes in Ephesians 2, and listen to how he describes this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, this is Ephesians 2, 1, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, listen to how the rule and reign of this, earth, of this earthly kingdom, of this man's kingdom, of, of, of even, you know, it, you could say the devil's kingdom, because look who the ruler is, following the prince of the power of the air. I think it can, it, we can miss the fact that the deceiver that deceived Eve, the serpent, the devil, that came to Eve and deceived Eve, that put that lie in her head at that first moment, and then she brought that lie to Adam, but who put that lie in her head that, no, you don't have to obey God. There's somebody else you can obey that's yourself. Still exists. It's still trying to deceive. It's still trying to usurp God's authority and ruin his kingdom. The prince of the power of the air that is working in the sons of disobedience. This is why there are people out there that are still trying, that are, that are lying to us and lying to themselves and saying, no, the kingdom that you follow, the world that you live in, isn't one created by God and one that we have to follow his rules. No, it's created by a set of rules that you get to decide. You can do whatever you want. And here we, we see that this this is this description of man's kingdom, but then it goes on. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. And by his grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we see that we were stuck in the kingdom of man, but God comes in and saves us from that. All of this that I'm describing here, this kingdom reality, has been described as two-kingdom reality. And this was first described all the way back in church history by a guy by the name of Augustine. Augustine lived, oh, I should have written this down, I think it's 380. It's either 300 or 400 AD. I mean, 300 or 400 years post-Christ. And he wrote this famous work called The City of God. And what was happening is that the Roman Empire was crumbling. 
And these individuals had taken so much stock in the Roman Empire thinking, this is the way to salvation. This is how we can be good. This is what has to take place. That once the Roman Empire was crumbling, there's this thought in, in people's lives going, what's going to happen now? And Augustine rightly describes these two cities that are taking place here on earth. These two cities that we can be caught up in, but two cities that we need to be able to distinguish between. He said these two cities, the city of God and the city of man, are grounded upon these two realities. The city of God is all about love for God. It's all about following his laws. The city of man is all about love for self. It's following whatever wind and doctrine you want to do. And while, again, we could go so many different places with this whole two-kingdom theology and with the city of God and city of man and do all of these things. The one I want to focus in on today, because I think it's what's important all the way back in John 7, is how do these two cities interact with each other? And they do. They do interact with each other. There's no way around not interact with them. You can't go, I'm in the city of God and I don't want anything to do with the city of man. You know why? Because we live in a world that is broken. And you have to exist within that brokenness. Because until glorification, you are simultaneously saint and sinner. Until glorification, you simultaneously live within a kingdom of man, within a rule that is focused on, on the, the love of self. And at the same time, we are following the kingdom of God. And we are following and we want to obey God's law and rule. And so we can ask this question, how do these two cities interact with each other. I have a question for you. Imagine if you could come up with a plan of action on how you were going to conquer another nation. Imagine if you got to decide how these two cities interacted with each other. How would you determine that these two cities would, um, that there would be a resolution between the two? Now, mind you, they're hostile towards each other. You can't go, let's just blend them and all live in harmony. No, because following God's law and following yourself are always opposed to each other because we're sinners. So how would you, if you got to pick the solution for it, how would you go about conquering, let's, just, let's assume you're in the city of God, this city of man? I'm going to assume something about you. You can assume it about me as well. We would use direct force. We would want to overwhelm the city of God. Or, sorry, we'd want to overwhelm the city of man and use direct force. I want to bring back in another sermon that I preached at Easter time because, again, we're going to get back around to John 7. I promise this is all going to fit together. We spoke about different types of power during that Easter sermon. And we compared two types of power. We compared direct straight line intervening power with left-handed power. Maybe this is ringing a bell if, if you were there. What is direct straight line intervening power? I know that's an odd term. Maybe that's a new term. That's definitely a long term. What is it? Well, it's the normal application of physical power that we use to solve problems. We think to ourselves, what power do we need to call upon to solve this issue? What power do we need to use to overwhelm the issue that we have at hand? I quoted from a, uh, from a guy named Robert Chapin. Highly recommend him. Also highly recommend this book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. Here's how he describes 
direct straight line intervening power. It says this direct straight line intervening power does, of course, have many uses. With it, you can lift the spaghetti from the plate to your mouth, wipe the sauce off your slacks, carry them to the dry cleaners, perhaps even make enough money to ransom them back. Indeed, straight line power, he puts in parentheses, the use of force you need, you need to get the result you want, is responsible for almost everything that happens in this world. And the beauty of it, it works. From removing the dust from a cloth to removing your enemy with a 45, it achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. Imagine if God used direct, straight-line, intervening power on us in the problem of sin. He would have no problem overwhelming us. I mean, he created us with the breath of his mouth, with his word. He could end us the same way. He could be, however, you're done, and you would cease to exist. He could very easily overwhelm us with this power. He could very easily saw the deceiver walk over to, to Eve and then Eve be deceived by the deceiver and then Eve take that fruit to Adam and then Adam was about to eat it and he could have very easily just stopped the whole sequence right there and said, no, that's a lie. I'm the ultimate power. You have to obey me. He could have very easily done that and not battered an eye. But he didn't. How did God choose to reconcile these two kingdoms. Instead of using direct straight line intervening power, an overwhelming force, he decided to do something that was very different. His solution was so shocking that our world, in our world today that even when we describe it to people, they go, that can't be. His solution was Jesus. It was a, as Luther called it, a left-handed power. You know why it's called left-handed power? I finally figured it out. Right-handed people... Isn't it weird to see left-handed people do almost anything else? Like, my wife's left-handed, so I'll, I'll pick on her. Her bowling looks weird. We went to Top Golf the other day. Her back, her whole golf swing looks weird. I'm just not used to it. I look, I look at it and go, it's backwards. You're not doing it right because right-handed people are right. You're, it's everything about it. You're like, it kind of looks like it's supposed to, but reverse. And then if somebody were to ask you, like right-handed person, throw with your left hand, we'd look like a fool, right? Left-handed power looks foolish. Because here's what left-handed power is. This is again, Chapman. Unlike the power of the right hand, left-handed power is guided by the more intuitive, open, imaginative right side of the brain. Left-handed power, in other words, is precisely paradoxical power. Power that looks from all the world-like weakness. Intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. More than that, it is guaranteed to stop no determined evildoer whatsoever. So left-handed power doesn't look like strength to us. It looks like weakness. Doesn't look like wisdom. Looks like foolishness. Doesn't look sensible. It looks crazy. In short, it doesn't even look like power at all. To put it in the city's context, the city of man is using this direct straight line intervening power. This is why, going back to John 7, I told you I'd get there. This is why Jesus' brothers... As they were like, well, Jesus, if you're going to build a city for yourself, if you're going to build a name for yourself, if you're going to conquer all these people, if you're going to win the political vote, if you're going to do all this stuff, you need to go up to the feast and show them what you can do. That's direct line straight, that's direct, whatever, straight line intervening power. That's our power. What's the city of God do? It uses that left-handed power. 
Here's what Michael Horton says about it. The city of God leads to genuine fellowship and communion of mutual giving and receiving. While the city of man engenders strife, war, and the desire to exercise dominance over others. Here's why I took us through that little journey. Israel was expecting Jesus. Was expecting the Messiah to look a different way than he actually looked. The nation of Israel was anticipating this Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That wasn't the shocking part. The shocking part was he was the Lamb. Israel in their mind for since Moses had this idea of this is what the Messiah is going to look like and do you know what they thought the Messiah was going to do? They thought the Messiah was going to come in and conquer the Roman Empire and bring them back to the good old days of Moses. This is why I find it ironic that so much is happening in this feast that's looking back at Moses. Because the Israelites, when they thought about the feast of Moses, they were celebrating the good old days. They, they were celebrating when they had their act together, when God was acting as he should, when they were at the height of his power, when they saw all these miracles. And they were celebrating that. And they thought the Messiah was going to come back and bring them back to that spot. And Jesus... The Messiah, instead of reestablishing the Sinai theocracy, instead of coming back and establishing all of the laws and the rules and the rituals that happened during Sinai, instead of bringing back the good old days, Jesus comes in and says, no, my kingdom doesn't work that way. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. Instead of driving out the Romans, he commanded us to love our enemies. Imagine that. I mean, this, is, this would be like the Sermon on the Mount, like Matthew 5, where, you know, they're thinking the Messiah again is going to come and with, with a whip towards the Romans, not with a, rip, a whip towards the Pharisees. And, and he's going to conquer the day. And he goes, no, you should love your enemies. They're like, but what about Rome? Because we don't like them. Instead of building a kingdom around bloodlines and earthly borders, we're going to make this pure Israel again. He's gathering a new Israel with both Jew and Gentile. Instead of conquering the city of man on, the side, on this side of heaven, Jesus is inaugurated a kingdom of grace that will be manifested one day in the kingdom of glory in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, Israel was looking for a temporal kingdom. Jesus came for future kingdom. I know I'm getting short on time. Turn to Hebrews 11. This kingdom is nothing new. It's not that Jesus came and all of a sudden was like, I'm going to switch up the narrative. No, rather, the Israelites, the Pharisees missed it. Hebrews 11, this is the, the, the hall of heroes as it's been said. It's looking back at the Old Testament, essentially describing that the faith that we have in Jesus is nothing new. That from the very beginning, people have been having faith in the coming Messiah. Maybe they didn't know his name was Jesus. Maybe they, they didn't know that he was going to come at Nazareth, where he was going to die on a cross. But they were trusting in the fact that God was going to send somebody to make all things new. Look at the faith of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he, this is uh, Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went and he, by faith, he went to live in the 
land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward, not to him overwhelming his neighbors and taking their homes, no. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past her age, since she since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heavens and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. But all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the land. I got two more verses. But people who, who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for as he has prepared for them a city. Here's, where, here's what we need to consider as we head into John 7. And even consider this as we live our lives. The moment that Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit. There was need for a new heavens and new earth because this heaven and this earth was marred. Because at that moment, there was another kingdom that should not have been there. God's plan has never been, let's overwhelm this kingdom and take back. That's a renewal. But God doesn't renew us in our faith in Christ. He recreates us in our faith in Christ. That's why Jesus' death is so important because he's putting to death this world and he's raising us anew. So here, as we look at Jesus' ministry, he's not telling us, overwhelm this nation, overwhelm this city, overwhelm this kingdom, and make them all God's kingdom. No, he's saying, uh, they're there. And God is obviously going to save individuals out of that kingdom by his grace. We're obviously going to interact with that kingdom. It's not about recreating God's kingdom here. It's about looking towards a new kingdom, a heavenly one, one that's going to come through Christ. I know I'm leaving this on a cliffhanger, and the, the beauty of consecutive preaching is that we get to start to fill in the blanks next week. But what we're going to see through this whole entire section is the details of that kingdom, both how we get to it and how the laws in this kingdom have been changed. I mean, I'll just highlight one thing this morning. John 8. Why did John, whether it actually took place during this time or John put it during this time, we'll briefly touch on that once we get to John 8. Why did he talk about the woman caught in adultery? Because the city of man would look at that woman and stone her. The city of God says, no, you're welcome too. Whoever has no sin can throw the first stone. The only person to throw a stone there would be Jesus himself. And he accepted her, even as she would not be accepted in the kingdom of man. As we close this morning, a question that I have for you is maybe one that you've been thinking about during this sermon. But it's what's king, what kingdom are you serving? What kingdom are you a part of? What law are you following? I know we're in this place, and so the assumption should be, well, the law of God, but are you? 
Because it's so easy. We, we live six days a week out in a culture that tells us that the laws of that culture are love yourself. And whatever makes you feel good, you should do. That's the law of self. Whatever makes you feel good. And they, oh my goodness, they are great at giving us stuff that makes us feel good. Do they not? Awesome stuff. Stuff that I find myself so easily being sucked into. Like TikTok is terrible because the dopamine hit on that sucker. Because they realize, ooh, we can give you interesting things every 60 seconds for affinity. But the kingdom of God is not one that's looking at the the love of self, but the love of God. So the question I have for you, and this is between you and the Lord, whose kingdom are you following? Are you understanding how the city of man is trying to lie to you? How the kingdom of man is trying to lie to you? And understanding that, running to God, saying, I need your grace. And here's the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God. How we get in is not how the world says that we have to get in. The the way the world tells us to get into their kingdom is obey perfectly, do all of the right things, reject all the right things. No, that's not the kingdom of God. The way that you get into the kingdom of God is by faith. The gift that we have from the kingdom of God is peace. And the assurance that we're in the kingdom of God does not come from your standing. I love what cancel culture has done to the kingdom of man. Because it's demonstrated, it is put on point, that if you don't stay in line with the rules that the kingdom of man sets up, we'll cut you off. It's all based on you. You got to keep up. You have to do all the right things, say all the right things, believe all the right things, vote the same way, put the posters out or the the flags out in front of your house. You've got to do all of that. That's how you can be assured that you're in good standing with that kingdom. The kingdom of God, no, your assurance does not come from what you do. It comes from what Christ has done. It's a great segue into communion this morning. As always, if you're here and... Just to continue with this language, if you're not sure which kingdom you're a part of, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you're listening to the sermon and you're like, hmm, maybe I'm following after the love of myself more than the love of God. I would ask that you just don't take these elements. And here's why. We take these elements as a moment as believers to celebrate To celebrate the assurance we have, the hope we have, the peace we have. But to celebrate the fact that the reason that we are good with God is not because we've done anything. It's because Christ has done everything. And if you're here this morning and and you you don't know which kingdom you're a part of, or I'm I'm using this language, you you don't know Christ as your your Savior, I would love to meet you and answer any questions that, that you might have. Because he's the only way, truth, and life. He's the only one who can give hope. You can try to satisfy yourself through the laws of the kingdom of man. They will fail you all day long because there's only one way in the kingdom of man is go deeper and deeper and deeper into their delusion. And yet there's grace. And grace is Christ. Let's pray. And we can take this together. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son and saving us in a way that we have to look at as from our perspective as absurd because it doesn't look like power at all because it's paradoxical power. Thank you that we can run to you and know that while you, that we, while we are weak and frail and sinners and broken and are, and, and, and still sin even as we know you that we can trust. We can trust you knowing that one, you, you knew all of that. Two, you paid for all of our sins. 
And three, that we can rest that you have done everything that we need to be reconciled to a holy God. Lord, I I do pray this morning if there are individuals in this room, as I'm sure there are, that have had their eyes so locked into the kingdom of this world in order to satisfy themselves through what it offers. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them the brokenness that's there. I pray that you would show them the beauty of your grace, that you would open your eyes and save them, and that they would feel your power and your rule and your kingdom. And as we looked at several weeks ago, knowing that that your, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, thank you that we can stand here today and know that we have hope because of your son. And in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.